0: Hi, this is Wayne Baker, author of All You Have to Do is Ask,
1: and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Wayne Baker. Dr. Wayne Baker is the Ross P. Tomei Professor of Business Administration at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business and Faculty Director of the Center for Positive Organizations. His professional focus is on social capital, social networks, generosity, and positive organizations. His articles have appeared in the Harvard Business Review, Chief Executive Magazine, and Sloan Management Review, among others. A frequent guest speaker and management consultant, Wayne Baker is co-founder of Give and Take, Inc., developers of the collaboration technologies based on principles from his latest book and Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. Wayne is here to talk about all you have to do is ask, how to master the most important skill for success. Welcome, Wayne. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. Wayne, it's a pleasure to have you. And one thing I love hearing and understanding about people as a way of getting to know them is when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? And I would have to say that it
0: was my father. He actually was a very quiet man. He didn't talk very much. Uh, he kind of led by example. and. Uh, He gave me the confidence that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And that's uh, quite a gift from a father to a son.
1: It sure is. Do you remember a time when that came into play and helped you make a decision or take an action that you probably wouldn't have without his support? Oh, yeah. So I remember, I think it was in middle school, I was taking French
0: and I do not have an aptitude for languages, but I was trying and I was struggling and I needed some help. But I found the teacher to be rather frightening and I didn't want to approach him, but I talked to my dad about it and he said, you know, I bet if you go and make a request of him that you need some help and ask for his advice, that he'd be pretty open and he would help you. So in a way, I could trace the origin of my new book, All You Have to Do is Ask, to that episode back when I was in middle school. And my father was right. When I went and talked to this French teacher and laid it out said, I'm stuck here. I really need your help. The guy just softened and he was very helpful. I learned more. I got a much better grade. You know,
1: I, I learned the power of, you know, having the courage to ask for what you need. Do you remember the name of your French teacher? Uh,
0: Mr. Lavallee.
1: Wow. Wayne, when I hear that story, it makes me think that the obstacle that was presented by Mr. Lavalley actually became a gift with long lasting implications. Do you view it that way now?
0: It did, uh, because I had to muster the courage. And I did that with my father's advice and realized that I was going to be a little vulnerable because you can't always predict how someone's going to respond. But looking back, and I've been a professor now for over 30 years. Looking back, I realize now what I was communicating to that teacher was, I care, I want to learn, uh, this is important, and I just need some more help. And I have to say, if any students ever come to me and convey that, I'm really motivated to help them. I really do want to help them.
1: Terrific for everyone listening who might be going through a master's program or an undergrad program or teaching one. Just a reminder of what a difference that makes and how students do need to gather courage in order to ask for help many times. Now, as a professional interest, how did you come to be faculty director at the Center for Positive Organizations?
0: Well, the Center for Positive Organizations was first created in 2002 when a couple of faculty came together with some wild and crazy ideas, no budget, no resources, no space, no administrative support, no nothing. But we had these crazy ideas that there might be a different way of looking at leadership and organizations where we would emphasize what we call positive deviance. Now, that's kind of a funny term. Usually when we use the word devious, we think about you know negative deviance. But if you think about it, let's say in terms of, of health. So negative deviance might be that you're ill or you're sick and you want to get better so that you're healthy and healthy would be the norm. But what would be positive deviance? Maybe it's Olympic fitness or maybe it's really super health or longevity or whatever it might be. So take that and apply it to organizations. You know, a lot of our focus was on teaching how to solve problems. Now you have to do that. You know, but solving problems gets you from negative deviance to normal. We said, well, what's beyond that? What are organizations that are really thriving organizations? Organizations, whether they're big or small, you know, where people love coming to work, where they can be their best selves, where they feel like they're living their passion and their purpose, that they're really pleased uh, to be a part of that organization. And the organization produces great results. You know, it's financially sound, customers are happy and so forth. And so we look at these thriving organizations, those positive deviants and say, okay, what are those organizations? What are their characteristics? What are their attributes? What are their processes? How do they do it so that they create great outcomes in a thriving workplace that creates those great outcomes?
1: Wayne, this is a really big time in positive psychology coming into the workplace and coming into the national consciousness. It's when Morty Seligman and Mihaly Sizik Sentimile established positive psychology as something crucial, recognizable, and distinct. And they were building on the work of Carl Rogers and um, Abraham Maslow. It's when Jim Collins published Good to Great. To what degree did those, those publications and those thinkers influence your work in starting your center? Well, it's certainly very compatible.
0: And oftentimes I'll draw a bell curve, a normal curve on the, on the board when I'm talking about this in, with my students, particularly when I'm introducing these ideas. You know, and I'll say, if you want to get from good to great, you've got to be thinking a lot differently. So good is the center of the bell curve and great is the tail. That's off to the right. Those are the positive deviants. And so I make a direct reference to, to that work. Another really big influence for us was positive psychology. And I can give you a very quick example. One of the tools that we developed at the Center for Positive Organizations says, okay, if you want to develop uh, both personally and professionally, one way to do it is to think about what you're bad at, your weaknesses, your deficits, and you know how do you correct those or at least get better at those? We said, okay, that's important. But let's look at it in a different way. Let's look at it as positive deviance and say, what are you like and what are you doing when you are at your best? And so we have a, a process called the reflected best self. Reflected means that you go out to your network and you ask your network to send you one or two stories with details. Details are really helpful of when they saw you at your best. And when you get these stories, and I have all my MBA students do this every year, They get these stories and they get to see themselves in a new way. So they get some confirmation of strengths that they knew that they had, but also they discover some strengths that they didn't recognize as strengths, which might sound a little strange, but if something is a strength, it's easy for you to do. So it's possible to uh, kind of discount it. Oh, that's just easy for me to do math. Let's say it's not easy for me to do math by the way. I'm just, I'm going to put that as a footnote, (laughs) but uh, you know, that would be an example And sometimes people don't know the impact that they've had on other people. And it's another way that we see when we are at our best. And so that'd be an example of a kind of tool that we use with individuals. We also use it in organizations of all sizes where, you know, if you have a, a team or a, let's say a small to medium organization, you can have people go through this process, help to identify your strengths. So, okay, now let's put you in a position that enables you to play to those strengths on a regular basis. Now, that might be shifting responsibilities around a little bit. You know, you and I might have complementary strengths, so I'll do more of one thing and less of another, and you'll do some of that. And we find that when you do this, you make these kind of shifts. You know, this idea of putting people in positions where they play to their strengths on a regular basis, that leads to a much more thriving workplace, a more thriving organization. People are happier, more productive, and, you know, the financial outcomes are there as well.
1: It's amazing how this work has been out there for decades now, and people are still inclined to look at people's weaknesses. And many managers are having the shift and and realizing that playing to your strengths and finding out what people do well and finding opportunities for them to do that on a regular basis is really one of the most powerful ways to build a high-performing organization and one that delivers better-than-average results consistently.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this is ingrained in us to focus on the negative. Think of, uh, think when your, you know, your son or daughter or nephew or niece came home with a credit card. With a, (laughs) if they come home with a credit card, that would be an issue. Let's say they came home with a report card and the report card had four A's and a D. What would you focus on? As a parent, you focus on the D. Okay, what's the problem? Why are you getting a D here? What's happening? And you kind of disregard all those A's. I always tell people, all right, take a ask them why are you getting the A? And they'll say, Well, I'm interested in the topic. I raise my hand. I ask questions. I see the teacher after work. I look forward to my homework. I don't put it off. And then they discover that they actually have the skills that they need to make improvements in the subject they're getting a D in. But we know at the report card, I know I have a son who's just graduated from high school and uh It was hard to make that shift. You know, he got all these good grades, but some weren't as good when he was in school. And it would be, you know, I wanted to just focus on the ones that seem like problems. But I recognize that it's an opportunity to help him identify his strengths by focus on how'd you get an A in those classes? That's wonderful. What did you do? So again, it's it's kind of ingrained in us to focus on the negative. I say it's also, there's a evolutionary reason for it back in, you know, thousands of years ago, focusing on the positive wasn't always a prescription for longevity. Focusing on the negative, the tiger that's about to eat you or the storm that's coming or raiders who are coming, you focus on the negative because that has survival value. So in a way, we were evolutionarily selected to focus a bit more on the negative. So that's important to know because you want to say, okay, that might be ingrained, but I can work against that and focus on the positive.
1: Absolutely. And all that we know about brain functions and the response to stress fits in here as well, where oftentimes we'll feel like situations are life or death requiring fight or flight responses when it isn't actually the case. And we just need to take action, but we feel blocked because this physiological response is making it seem like it's a much bigger deal than it actually is to ask for help, for instance.
0: That's right. You know, that uh, I think it comes into play there as well, where oftentimes reluctant to ask. And so, as you know, I have a chapter in the book talking about some common barriers or obstacles to asking for what you need. And there's research that's really helpful for updating those beliefs. And I could go over two very quickly. One is that we often underestimate other people's willingness and ability to help. Many times when I've used the tools that I write about in the book, someone will take me aside and say, you know, I'm not going to ask for what I need because, you know, I know no one here can help me. And I always say, never prejudge the capabilities of the group. You never know what people know or who they know, because that's the other way you can help. I may not have the answer or the resource, but I can tap my network and get it for you that way.
1: So the people are actually taking themselves out of the game before they even make the request.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's happened a lot. And I'll say, you know. The research shows that most people will help you if you ask. Even there's this classic experiment that was done in New York City where the participants in this study had to go out into the city and ask a complete stranger to borrow their cell phone. And they couldn't give a sob story or beg or explain. All they could say was, could I use your cell phone to make a call? So you think about how many people do you think you'd have to ask in New York City to get a cell phone? Well, it turns out that you only have to ask one or two and you get a cell phone.
1: That's amazing. That was not what I was expecting.
0: It is. No, no. Everyone always estimates, oh, you need to talk to five people, 10 people. You'll never get a phone. But the fact is, is that even under those conditions, people are very likely to help. So, you know, the research is helpful to say that if you ask, almost everyone will say yes.
1: The idea of asking someone for their cell phone. I actually did that a couple of years ago. My family and I were traveling in Sydney. And they wouldn't let us book a certain excursion unless we're using a local cell phone number. And I had to ask someone and my family was saying, well, no one's going to let you use your cell phone. I said, let's find out. <laughs> and I didn't have the, the preconceptions like in New York City, I would have thought it would have been really hard. But I, I went to the desk manager and I simply explained, I need to use a cell phone because I need a local number in order to book this thing. May I use yours? And it was just as simple as asking. It really surprised me. And it just came to mind as you described that particular experiment.
0: Well, you know, one thing I could point out in your request is that you applied the criteria of an effective request. Uh, there were SMART criteria. It's This is different than SMART goals. But you think about it, in your request there, it was very specific. That's the S. The M was the meaning, the importance, why you were making a request. Oftentimes, you leave that out. It's really amazing. How often we just assume that people think our request is important. You never assume you have to explain why, which you did. You asked for something to be done. That's the action. You asked to borrow that person's phone. You know, it was something that was strategically realistic. The person could do it. And then you asked for it right then, uh, which is the T in the smart criteria. So you apply it all of that quite naturally when you made that request.
1: Well, I'm glad that I can add some data to the support of that structure. (laughs) (laughs) You had another experiment that you were going to tell me about. What was that?
0: Oh, yes, thanks. That was uh, another common assumption or barrier that gets in the way of making a request. And that is that we, you know, sometimes we worry that if we ask for something that we're going to appear to be incompetent, weak, ignorant, can't do our jobs, whatever. And that's a very, very common belief. Here, the research is helpful for updating that. As long as you make a thoughtful, intelligent, smart request, people will think you are more competent, not less. So if you're armed with what we've learned from research, that can help you get over the barriers to making requests for what you need. But then you also need practice. You know, It's a habit to ask for what you need, and you need to practice that. also want to point out that It's important to do both, both giving and helping others and to ask for what you need. In the book, I call them the giver requesters. They generously help other people without regards, if it's going to come back to them or not, and they make requests for what they need whenever they need it. That's the best place to be as an individual, as a team, or an
1: entire organization. Let's back up. Can you... Talk about an example of someone maybe who you've consulted with or have worked with through the Center for Positive Organizations who was reluctant to ask for help, but learned these techniques and learned how the motivations and methods could actually help them be more effective and turned around this area of their life by asking for help more often and asking more effectively.
0: Well, one example that comes to mind and I write about in the book is Jim Malazzi. So, CEO and Chairman of the Board of Prudential Real Estate and Relocation. So, it's a global company, but headquartered in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time. And I had met him earlier when he was in another company, not the CEO, another company, and had used some of the tools that I was writing about in the book, such as the reciprocity ring. And he really learned about the importance of asking for what you need, and also, as the leader, being a role model of the behavior that you want. So he took this with him. Now, Prudential Real Estate at that time was in dire straits. They were losing many, many millions of dollars every year. Customers didn't like them. Their talent was leaving in droves. And so he was really faced with a tough situation. And by applying a lot of these principles that we talk about at the Center for Positive Organizations and that I write about in the book, he was able to turn this company around in just two years and make it profitable, winning JD Power Service Awards and attracting and keeping talent. So I can tell you uh, one, one example of what he actually did very early on, and this was applying these lessons directly and adapting it to his circumstances. So this, I think, was his first keynote address to all of the associates who worked with Prudential real estate and relocation. And so there were several thousand in a convention center in Scottsdale, the headquarters, but there were also thousands all around the world. And he made a request. He pulled out his cell phone, held it up, and he said, okay, I want you to all pull out your cell phones. And there was this collective groan throughout the convention center, and you could probably hear it around the world as well, because everyone thought he was going to say and turn that thing off. He said, I want you to make sure that it's on, and I want you to either text or email, and then he put up a text number and an email address. would like you to send your ideas, uh, recommendations about what's the best way to get a new client keep a client how do you provide you know extraordinary service to clients and so people were doing that and within 36 hours he had collected a couple of thousand high quality ideas from this network around the world by making that request and then people were responding so that's one very concrete example that's the uh, the application you know you have to make the request and you know it's amazing you know how many CEOs are reluctant to make that kind of request? They usually say, "Here's our corporate goals and here's our strategy, and those are that's important. But how about putting yourself out there and making a request? He even made a request for his personal goals. You know, he said that you know, so he's living in Scottsdale, Arizona, a lot of the time, but his family and two daughters lived in Connecticut. So he's spending a lot of time away from home, traveling a lot. And so he laid out his personal goals and made a request for help with those as well. Very unusual for a CEO. Uh, But he's a positive deviant and, uh, you know, one of those positive leaders. And so I'll give you an example. He said, look, I don't, you know, I'm spending a lot of time here, but I don't want to miss any important occasions or events with my daughters. That's a goal. Another goal is I want to lose some weight because I've been traveling a lot, not exercising enough or eating as well as I would like. And so those goals, people responded to them and people understood when he had to go to Connecticut for an important event. Or uh, they would stop by the cafeteria and make sure he was eating a salad and somebody's volunteered to be his running partner in the morning, you know? And he was living the principles. He was that role model of asking for what you need. And then people are extraordinarily generous when you do.
1: These seem like small asks that delivered outside results simply because of his title. But they're things that everyone can do in any organization, especially now when we're working from home and separated from each other making requests is actually a way of building those bridges and strengthening relationships, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the many,
0: many challenges that we have during this pandemic is isolation, disconnection, and loneliness. And so, you know, we, that's it's kind of always been a problem, but it's really become a problem now because people are hunkered down, usually in their homes, not going in and working individually I think this time it's absolutely critical, not only for business effectiveness, but for mental health to reach out and to uh, you know, connect with people that you haven't talked with in a long time. Something like LinkedIn, you can almost find anyone on LinkedIn or Facebook. Reconnect with people would be really important to do. One thing that we did for three months running is that my wife and I had the idea of creating a, a virtual happy hour on Fridays. And we had we eventually had a regular group of people who would would attend. We usually had a question, kind of a you know, to get people talking. And in that hour, we would have somebody who had volunteered before to give a, a fifteen minute presentation on some fascinating topic. So somebody knew a lot about the pyramids and Egyptology. Someone talked about that. Someone was a member of the Audubon Society. We're avid avid uh, sailors on the Great Lakes, and so I talked about that. And it was just this wonderful opportunity for people to connect. Oftentimes, you know, like one person was neighbors up the street here who I would say hi when I walked by, but never really had a meaningful conversation with, but was having those conversations because we made a request for people to join this group.
1: That's fabulous. I've found that just by walking my dog, I've met more of my neighbors in the last three months than I've met in the last 10 years of living in my town.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I've kind of, I, I see them go by my house. We don't have a dog. And I kind of think maybe we ought to get one for that reason.
1: <laughs> or, or just have out water or ice or treats for dogs and they could stop by and you could start a conversation that way. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. So I love that you turned your Friday happy hour into a mini TED Talk.
0: Yeah, it was really, you know, we wanted to do something that would be, but the criteria was it couldn't be like super academic. It had to be something interesting or fascinating or curious or something. And people really responded to that. So many people presented in it. And a variation of that would be to find a, you know, a 10, 15 minute TED talk that you really love and people would watch that. So you don't have that people willing to present to have, you know, in an hour, 15 minutes to watch this fascinating TED talk and then talk about it a little bit. You know, it adds a little bit of substance and structure to it. So it's not just about, you know, just, you know, getting together and having a beer or whatever, but add some structure. And I think one of the things that we've learned is that it's it's important to really facilitate sessions like this. And that was one, one of the ways that we did it.
1: I love that, Wayne, for so many reasons, because you don't want to just allow entropy to take place because otherwise you'll just be exchanging banana bread recipes with people. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you know, stories about how things are tough. This actually is uplifting and nourishing to have people share a particular hobby or passion that they have a lot of interest and knowledge in. So you get to know them better. I, I really like that idea. I just want to highlight that.
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was fascinating. I learned so much, and you know, I appreciated that opportunity to share my passion for sailing the Great Lakes. Yeah, it was really a wonderful thing to do, and I think that there's a lot of variations of it. You know, I had been in some uh, Zoom meetings where that weren't actively facilitated and there was no guiding structure to it. And there was a lot of just kind of looking at a bunch of, you know, Hollywood square pictures or the Brady Bunch pictures on my screen. It was really awkward, you know, so these these sessions do need to be actively facilitated.
1: Very true. Now, speaking of structure, I'd love it if you would talk a little bit about the reciprocity ring. It's something that you've brought a lot of detail to in the book. And you have an example in there with Christina from Romania, who didn't herself, but her mother on her behalf made this request. And it turned into something pretty remarkable. Can you share that story, please?
0: And so the reciprocity ring is a team or group activity in which people are required to ask for something that they need, but they spend most of their time helping other people. So it's both giving and asking. One of the reasons that it works, as well as all the tools I write about in the book, is that it normalizes asking, it normalizes requesting, and you know it's a lot easier to do it if everyone's in the same psychological boat. If everyone knows that everyone needs to make a request as part of the, the rules of this activity, then people find it a lot easier to do a lot better than, you know, spotlights on you. You're going to make a request and we're all just going to watch you, you know, but you know, if everyone's going to do it. And so we had that insight when uh, Cheryl Baker, my wife and I created the reciprocity ring 21 years ago. It's now been used all around the world. Uh, It's been used in 12 different languages. It seems to be universal, works in any culture. And it's a process by which people ask for something that they need and people will respond to those requests. So it sounds very simple. There's a particular recipe for doing it. But you know, when we first created this, I thought that getting people to help, to be generous was going to be the problem. And so I'd always start with a little introduction, a little lecture on the importance of generosity. You know, that was never the problem. People were incredibly generous, but everyone was struggling with coming up with something to ask, coming up with a request so that's when I first came up with the smart criteria and some of the prompts that I write about in the book, ways of helping people to make requests, to think about what they're trying to accomplish or resource that they need and so forth, and then just state it in the reciprocity ring. So the reciprocity ring is used in lots of places. One is that it's used in INSEAD, which is one of a premier business school in France. So hold that thought. There's a little girl named Christina who lives in Romania and she had a birth condition called craniosynostosis so the human skull is made up of multiple bones and they're joined by cranial sutures uh, which are these uh, fibrous tissues that join those different bones together and this is a brilliant design because it allows the skull to expand as the brain and the head grow every now and then one or more of those sutures will fuse prematurely and the head can't expand so Only bad things come from this. So if the head can't expand, uh, you end up with a misshapen head and a distorted face, which would mean a lifetime of social isolation and ridicule. It can lead to learning delays, blindness, seizures, even death. Chances of finding someone who could correct this condition in Romania were remote. But fortunately, Christina had an aunt by the name of Felicia who lived and worked at INSEAD. And she was actually being trained to run the reciprocity ring for the MBA students. They use it for all the MBA students and they'll have faculty or staff trained to run this activity. And as part of the training, you're required to participate and to make a real meaningful request. And so she made a request on behalf of her little niece, Cristina in Romania, described the whole situation and said, we very quickly need to find a surgeon who could correct this condition. Well, it turned out the resource that they needed was right there. There was a, an adjunct professor So, you know, someone working part-time in the business school teaching, but uh, his main job was a physician in a a local hospital. It turned out to be a pediatric hospital. In fact, the oldest one in the world, it's in Paris. And he said, I know we have surgeons who can can correct this condition. An introduction was made. Remember, those are two ways you could help. You've got the resource or you could tap your network. An introduction was made. Christina, her family flew to Paris. She had the surgery. It was a complete success. And uh, she's since been back a couple of times you know, for her annual physical, and everything is completely normal. In fact, I have a picture of Christina on my desk like a little bit just after the surgery that I keep as a reminder of the importance of asking for what you really need, because when you do, even miracles can happen.
1: That's such a great story, Wayne, because it's so tangible, and what a profound difference it made just simply asking. So that when the exercise came up, Felicia actually asked for something that was very much on her heart and on her mind to put it out there, even knowing that maybe no one could do this. But surprise, surprise, somebody was there who actually could make the introduction and opened up a pathway to the operation that really made a profound difference in her niece's life.
0: Absolutely. And that's, you know, I have a thousand stories like that, maybe not quite as dramatic, but incredible stories. When people have had the courage to ask for what they need, really amazing things have happened. Plus there were lots and lots of stories like in a business context of people who make this, use some of the tools that I write about could be the reciprocity ring, stand ups, huddles, the troikas, all the stuff I write about. Uh, I can give you a a good example. So a colleague of mine, uh, I've kind of met through our Center for Positive Organizations, works for a a global chemical company he's headquartered in allentown pennsylvania he runs one of the labs who's a chemist running the labs and they have like a thousand labs all around the world and so he implemented some of these principles in what he called uh rapid fire sessions in fact i was so taken by this i write about it in the book so what he does is that he would well it's based on the assumption that okay we're working in our lab in allentown pennsylvania And we might run into some issue with a chemical process or some reaction or whatever, and we don't quite understand. But the chances are in some other lab in this vast network, someone has already solved this problem. They've run into this problem, right? The problem is how do you find that? So he instituted these rapid fire sessions that are done virtually. And this was actually being done prior to the pandemic. So he's continued it afterwards. And they'll go through a set agenda, things and so forth. But then at the end, People make requests for what they need. And what they discover is that the solution to about any business or scientific problem they've run into is out there somewhere in the network. But you know, you gotta ask, otherwise people don't know. So there's an example in a business context of uh, you know, the power of asking.
1: It's such a great example too, because it shows that even people who are highly educated, chemists, chemical engineers, scientists who may think that they are expected to know these answers come into a culture where this is an ongoing activity. And with frequency, you get the chance to develop the habits as well as to normalize the asking and giving help. Because I'm sure people feel delighted to be able to offer help to others as well as delighted to get solutions to their own problems.
0: Yeah, so we've talked before about uh, our Center for Positive Organizations. Uh, One of the foundations is positive psychology and a focus on positive emotions. There are actually two positive emotions in asking for, giving, and receiving help. One is that we kind of have a warm glow of giving, that it feels good to help other people. And I think we're hardwired to do that. And when we receive help, the positive emotion that we experience is gratitude for help received. And I've done some research with a colleague of mine where we've looked at many, many, many thousands of decisions whether or not to help someone, you know, someone hadn't helped you. And we found that gratitude for help received is one of the biggest motivators to help someone else is that so many people help me, so when I'm asked, I want to pay it forward and help other people.
1: Could you break down the glow of giving to emotional terms? Because gratitude is a recognizable emotion. Is the glow of giving something along the lines of proud, of having something of value to contribute?
0: Would, I think pride would be part of it. Also, happiness, even joy, if you could help in a in a really big, important way. It could even be a more less intense emotion like contentment with the fact that you help someone.
1: So it covers a spectrum and that intensity may depend upon the situation and a number of other factors. But I, I like that we've now put that into two emotional terms because we're talking about the emotions and people can relate to that through that language more effectively. Wayne, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round?
0: Absolutely. Let's do it.
1: Earlier, I asked about somebody who inspired you growing up. When you were a teenager, what's a song that inspired you? I'd have to
0: say, this is going to sound very strange. I listened to The Doors a lot when I was a teenager, and Light My Fire would have to be the song.
1: And if you could put a summary or a slogan of your work on a billboard that business leaders and everyone who could benefit from it had to read each morning, what would it say?
0: Well, it's been said that it's better to give than receive. But I say that it's best to give and receive. You need to
1: ask, receive, and give. Nice distinction. What would you say is the best $100 purchase you've made, either professionally or personally, in the last six months?
0: It would have to be a replacement battery for my drone, because that's something I can do while I'm socially isolating, and I could do it with my son who finds an interest in flying the drone.
1: And what would you say is the most important habit or routine or belief that you've stopped? In the last year, that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction.
0: It would be. This is going to sound very pedestrian. It would be to stop staying up so late and to uh, get myself to bed at a reasonable time, so I can wake up at a good time and be productive in the morning.
1: And what helped you with that? Just recognizing that that was something that was impacting your day.
0: Yeah, recognizing that not being satisfied with how I felt like in the morning if I had to force myself up early to for a meeting, and realizing that, you know, these are habits and that you have, if you change the structure and commit to that, you know, I often talk about the, um, the behavior first principle, which is that if you want to, it's very hard to change your beliefs and attitudes about things, but you can change your behavior. And if you change your behavior, you will update your attitudes and your beliefs. In fact, that's a principle throughout my entire book was that people often say, you know, I'm not going to engage in that activity because I know it's not going to work. I don't believe it. And I always say, hey, look, I don't, you don't have to believe anything. Would you just do it? You know, Here's the steps. Would you just do it? And they'll say yes. And at the end, they always come back and say, you know what? Now I believe. Now I get it. And the reason is, is that their experience is the evidence that they needed
1: to believe it. In 1492, Columbus said, I don't know whether you believe or not that the earth is flat, but I believe that I can reach the Indias by sailing west. <laughs> And he brought back empirical evidence. He didn't quite reach the Indies, but he did show that he didn't fall off the ends of the earth or met with catastrophic dragons. Yep, that's right. That's a good example. Wayne, what is it that people struggle the most with in your professional experience and working with people from all sorts of activities and industries? What do people struggle the most with in asking for help? I think there are
0: two things. One is an understanding of the why why you're asking for something or why you need to ask for something. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. So I talk about you know, a couple of different ways of doing it. And one of the most powerful ones is called visioning. And it's writing a detailed, specific narrative of what your life looks like, say, two, three, five years from now. And you would want to include personal details, professional details, family life, and so forth. And when you have that vision of the life you want to have a few years from now, you have a much better sense of what you need to get there. You have intermediate goals, you need, okay, well, if I'm going, if, you know, if I want to do that, then I need to do this now and I need to make these requests. So having an idea of where you're going, that goal is really important. Sometimes people don't have that in mind. And then the other would be giving yourself permission to ask for what you need. So the title of the book is "All You Have to Do Is Ask," which is, you know, catchy, but it's simplistic. But what it means is that all you have to, if you do ask, people will help you. But you've got to get past that barrier. You have to climb that mountain and get past those obstacles that often stand in the way. Those misbeliefs or incorrect assumptions, and then you've got to apply some of these criteria and practice it, and then you'll find that you get the inflow of resources, ideas, you know, support money that you need as an entrepreneur, as a small business owner, or as the, the leader of a big company.
1: When you've also included a hint in your title that it's the most important skill for success. And anytime I see the word skill, I get very excited because I've realized that even if I don't have that ability, I can learn it. I can learn it from people who have developed that skill because we're not born with skills. It's something we develop. We may have talents that lend us ourselves to develop things more quickly or more naturally than others. But if it's a skill, we can all make progress towards it by learning from others who have studied and researched and found ways to convey what makes it effective. And that's something that you've done both in your book as well as in this interview. So I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today.
0: Well, thank you, Bill. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, and uh, I wish you all the best.
1: Wayne, before we say goodbye for now,
0: tell me, where is it we could find out more about you and your work online? You could find out more about the work and my book at the website for the book, which is is com. So that's the book website, and you'll find a lot of free resources there, free assessment, articles, podcasts, and so forth.
1: Fabulous. And we're going to link to all of the special people and resources that we covered in the interview, as well as your social media and other associations and organizations you're involved with, such as Gravitas. So we're going to put that in the show notes so that people listening to this can go to one resource and find easy ways to connect with you, your work, and everything that you're involved in professionally.
0: Well, that's wonderful. Thank you, Bill.
1: It's been a pleasure, Wayne. Thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.